1 Samuel chapter 17, we come into a section uh, that is kind of the aftermath of this great battle with David and Goliath. The result of the battle, of course, we saw last week is David having victory over this champion, this champion who stood on behalf of the Philistines, who represented all the power and might of the Philistines, who represented the God of the Philistines, and yet uh, we find that David has had victory. And what we see as we looked at the text last week is that David says explicitly that he's going to have victory, not because of his skills, not because of his experience, not because he is uh, quicker, not because he's uh, more agile, not because of any of these things, but rather he says that he will have victory for the same reason that he has had victory over lions and bears that he's previously fought. And he said that the reason that he had victory over, over those creatures was because the Lord delivered him. And what David does is that he says again and again is that it's the Lord who will deliver him. It's the Lord who will rescue him. It's the Lord who makes a way. And he's such a contrast to Saul who operates from fear. We find that David is one who works from a position of faith. He works from a position of faith. He works not from a position of faith that is strong on the basis of his own, uh, of his own mustering. He's not trying to say, you know, well, I, I'm, I'm a really big believer, and so I'm going to, you know, I, I believe uh, in a much larger way than others. But rather, David is operating from faith on the basis of God's past faithfulness. It's God's work that he's counting on. It's not, he, David is not counting on his own ability to believe, but rather on God's ability to remain faithful at all times. And God's record is perfect. He's undefeated. He's never failed. And so David can count on the faithfulness of the Lord. And of course, he goes into battle. He has this victory. And then we come now to chapter, or the, the end of, of uh, chapter 17. And we see now this exchange between Saul, who basically tried to get out of the battle, right? He would have been the natural person to go, the tallest in Israel. He would have been the natural person to go head to head with Goliath. But now we find that Saul has to confront the reality that David has had victory. Now, in one sense, I believe that Saul wanted David to have victory because he really didn't want to become a slave to the Philistines. But it seems that as life goes on for Saul, this becomes bittersweet. The more that David is victorious, the more Saul is sorrowful. And so we read in verse 55 these words, As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? Now, we find that David is there. He's had this interaction with uh, Saul. Uh, Saul, he's like, hey, I want to fight. Saul's like, cool, here's, here's some armor. Gives him his armor, gives him his sword, his shield. He's ready to go. And what happens is David says outright, this, this isn't going to work. He's like, I, I can't fight in these things because they have not been tested. I've not tested them. And what we said last week was that David is making this declaration that, 
When I've gone to battle before, when I have put my life on the line before, I've not depended on the sword and the shield. I've not depended on the armor. I've gone out wholly depending upon the Lord. And he goes out to fight this battle. And, and he tells Saul, like, I, I can't wear these things. They don't work. It's uncomfortable. And he already had to kind of talk Saul into fighting in the first place a little bit. And yet, as he goes out, as soon as we're told here, Saul saw David go out against the Philistine. He turns to his commander, uh, uh, Abner, and he says, whose son is this? Now, what, what uh, Saul is getting at here is he is kind of, in one sense, uh, wanting to get to know this person. But more than that, remember, there's a promise that's made here that uh, Saul is trying to find out some details because in this long shot, if David happens to win, the reward for David is that, uh, you know, he's going to, uh, he's going to marry the, the king's daughter. He's going to have riches, but his family will also be free from taxation. They're going to live tax-free. And so uh, this is kind of a little bit of a formality perhaps here that he's asking this question. And, and, and we want to note here specifically that, that Saul doesn't say, Who, who's, who's out there fighting? He says, who's his parents? Who's, whose kid is this? He wants to know this so that he can perhaps fulfill this uh, vow that he would make here to free David's family from taxation. And so uh, additionally, if, if this guy, David, does win, he's going to come into the royal court. So he's like, let's, let's get some info about him, right? So that way when he comes in, I'm not just like, who is this guy? Now he goes out and Abner, he's like, I have no clue. I have no clue who this guy is. But the king responds back. He says, inquire whose son the boy is. He's like, let's get the info. And as soon as David returned from striking down, uh, from the striking down of the Philistines, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. So David has victory. He shows up. He's got this battle. He's got his proof of victory here. And, and as we said last week, what happened is, as you, as you kind of in that section last week in verse 54, David takes the head of the Philistines and he brings it to Jerusalem and he, he, he kind of parades this around Israel as if to kind of say, like, look, here's the faithfulness of God. Because what did he say? He said that, that Goliath would be defeated, not for his own purposes, not just so that David could win, not just so that Israel could be free, but David said that Goliath would be defeated so that the nations would know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly would know that the God of Israel is faithful. And so here he shows up on Saul's doorstep with evidence of God's faithfulness. What an uncomfortable moment for Saul who has proven to be fearful who has proven to be one who runs away from the Lord, who has proven to be somebody who is constantly fighting against the Lord. Here, little David comes in, and he's got the head of Goliath, and he's like, look at the Lord's faithfulness. No doubt this was an uncomfortable moment for Saul. Because surely he thought, well, I have to put up with this guy now? I have to deal with this guy. He's the champion. 
A little kid went out to battle, and he had victory. Now, we'll see as we move on uh, into the remaining portions of chapter 18 that he gets, Saul is continually irritated by David and his presence and uh, his work. But nevertheless, David stands before Saul. He stands there with the head of Goliath in his hand, this symbol of God's faithfulness. And he asks him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. He makes this declaration, which is helpful for Saul. But I think more than anything, what it does for the modern reader is it gives us these breadcrumbs. It gives us these breadcrumbs and our ears should perk up when we hear those words. First, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Of course, this tells us that the lineage of David is through Jesse. And of course, as New Testament readers, as modern readers, we see that this will be the line through which Christ comes. We see that. We get it. We look back at, uh, you know, of course, uh, the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, and we see that you can trace this all the way back. You can see David's line. You can see this goes back to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And in here, we find that Saul is asking this question that essentially becomes the question that all humanity asks. He asks the same question of another who was born in Bethlehem. All humanity leads to the place of following these breadcrumbs where we see that Jesus is born in Bethlehem and we are asking these same questions. Whose son is he? What do you say about Jesus who was born in Bethlehem? We are forced, even at this juncture, to confront the reality of that question. We're not intended to just see it and be like, yeah, like he's a guy's son, cool. Like, that's great. But what you do as the result of understanding whose son this is, that tells a lot about your decisions, about your character. Now Saul, again, he operates from fear. And so most of his understanding is that he's seeking to protect his identity. He's seeking to, to guard his kingdom. Saul is one who is wary. He is afraid. And so he's constantly trying to get information so that he can be on guard. He's just a little kid. We kind of know who he is. Great. Son of Jesse the Bethlehemite. Awesome. He's got his info. He's holding on to it. But now the result of asking whose son is this should motivate him then to now say, okay, well, this person is now to be honored because they have all the full rights and responsibilities, the full role, the full privileges of one who is now in the royal court. They have been adopted into the royal court by nature of this victory. 
By this victory, this person has been welcomed in. It's through the slaying of this giant that we now find David has access into the court. And Saul should have recognized him in humility as one who is there, welcomed into the court. But yet he gathers this info so that he might protect himself. Now we see the contrast in verse 1 of chapter 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. What a crazy contrast, right? We come from Saul, who is the king, who's operating from fear, who's seeking to control David, who doesn't really want to recognize him, to now we see Jonathan, who is the son of Saul. As soon as he hears David finishing these words, we read that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, what, what does this mean? Well, Jonathan, if you recall, is in a sense very, very similar to David. Because Jonathan had his earlier victories. He went out on his own when Saul the king was kind of sitting back with his army and uh, Saul there sees a, a garrison of the Philistines and he says, you know, we're going to go out and attack that. And he goes out and has victory by himself. And uh, this happens a couple times with Jonathan. He trusts in the faithfulness of the Lord. The second time he goes out, he, he puts out this, uh, this faith. Uh, he's, he's seeking the Lord, whether the Lord is giving him favor. And so he's counting on the faithfulness of God to deliver him if it's the, the Lord's will. He's asking the Lord to give him direction. And so he says, you know, uh, he says to his armor bearer, if the Lord wants to deliver these people into our hands, then uh, let's go up there and we'll, we'll talk to them and we'll, we'll you know, uh, take away the element of surprise. We'll show ourselves to them. And then if they say, hey, like, stay right there. We're going to come up to you then we'll know that the Lord's not with us. But if they say, hey, why don't you guys climb up this hill and come up to us, then we'll know that the Lord's with us and he wants to deliver, deliver them into our hand. And he says, because the Lord can save by many or he can save by few. What Jonathan has said is that he's, he's trusting in the Lord's faithfulness. He's like, if the Lord's going to save, he doesn't need a lot to save. He can save by few, just as much as he can save, you know, by many. And so what Jonathan's test there is to put all of his, his trust, his reliance into the Lord, because what he does is he takes away the element of surprise. Then he tells them, hey, like, we're, we're here. And then they say, come up and fight us. And so he takes the weaker position uh, strategically by climbing up an entire, you know, hillside with his armor bearer into, you know, so he has the low ground. He has to expend all this energy, and now he's got to fight, like, an entire garrison of Philistines. It's just a horrible battle plan. Like, you just don't do that. But yet, he believes that the Lord will deliver him, and so off he goes, and he demonstrates that he trusts the Lord. But now, we see Jonathan... 
Jonathan is a man who hears the words of David, who sees this battle that has just taken place. And instead of responding in fear like Saul, instead of responding in fear and saying, you know, this guy, he just had an amazing victory that's going to go down in history that the entire army just saw. Like, this guy's a legend already. And he could, his, his popularity could easily overthrow me. This is Saul's thinking. But yet Jonathan, he sees, he hears these things, and he does not demonstrate any jealousy regarding David. In fact, quite the opposite is true. He forms this deep, lasting friendship with David. They are these souls, we're told, that are knit together. These two guys who are like-minded in their pursuit of holiness, their pursuit of knowing and enjoying the Lord, their pursuit in faith. They believe the Lord. They trust the Lord. This is what propelled both of them. It compelled them to go out and fight the Philistines in the first place. Both of them are motivated by uh, protecting God's character. They're like, the Philistines are defaming Israel. Like, let's go. Let's go and fight. And they fight even against the odds. When the Philistines are militarily superior, they go into battle. We find that as the story goes on, Jonathan and David are close. Now, the real reason for their closeness is because they have that deep passion for the Lord. This goes beyond any other bond. Beyond any other bond. This is why Jesus himself, when he was sitting with a group of people, and he's teaching them in a house, and his family shows up, and his mom and his brothers are there, and word gets through to the crowd, from the crowd to Jesus, hey, like your, your mom and, and your, your family's like outside. They're, they're out there. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, hang on, guys, like I gotta be right back. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go take care of them. You guys know how important family is. So just like pause, I'm going to go deal with this, and then when I'm done, I'll come back. Instead, what Jesus says is, who is my mother? <laughs> who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? He says, anyone who obeys me is my mother and brother. And anyone who does not hate family, you know, more than they love me, then, then, then you have no part of me. What Jesus is saying there is that there is a relationship that, that supersedes that of just pure blood relationship. And that is the relationship that we have with Christ and with one another in Christ. The community of Christ. It's a deeper relationship that exists because it's a relationship that is brought about by our Savior. It's a relationship that is purchased for us by the shed blood of Christ. It brings us into relationship with him, and by default, then brings us into relationship with one another. 
There's things that you may or may not like about your family. There's things you may or may not like about your parents. You're kind of stuck with it. That's just kind of how life is. And in some instances, you know, I think that there's a natural thing that happens there because I think all parents look around and they want their kids to be better and smarter and more successful. They want to give them a leg up. They want to make sure that they're, they have uh, provision. They want to make sure that everything's good. And that you hope that one day your, your kids surpass you. That they build on what you've built for them and surpass you. And so in some instances, when we look at our family, we look around at one another and we say, okay, well, you know, I'm definitely a a little bit more skillful in this area or that area. And I've, you know, built on their past success and I've figured out how to live and navigate this world. And so, uh, you know, perhaps I'm, I'm more successful or in an area that other people are wrong, perhaps I'm right. But see, it doesn't work that way in the body of Christ. Because Jesus is perfectly successful. He's perfectly successful. And he's never wrong. And you can never surpass him. So in the body of Christ, it's it's a perfect opportunity for relationship because Christ is never hoping to be surpassed. We're only hoping to be together with our brothers and sisters and point each other to Christ and say, look at how amazing Jesus is. Not... We could be better than him. We can go do our own thing. You see, the job of the church, the job of the body of Christ, is to point one another to Jesus, not to find other ways to do things apart from him, to do things with him. This is why we can find things like uh, uh, Proverbs that say that there is a, a friend that sticks closer than a brother. It's natural for us to feel like, oh, there's, you know, our brother, he's got our back. But if there's somebody in your life, somebody in the body of Christ who's passionate about Jesus, who wants to point someone else to Jesus, and that person is all about Jesus, man, there's a depth of relationship that cannot be be broken there because Jesus binds you together and you can't break Jesus. It doesn't work. You can try, but you're going to fail. Now, Saul... And Jonathan react to David differently. Saul sees that this guy, somebody we can't, I, I can't like let him out of my sight. Got to make sure that like I know exactly where he is and what he's doing and I'm controlling him. And Jonathan is just like, oh man, this guy, we're passionate about the same thing. We love the Lord. And so Saul's response, of course, is to control David. Verse 2, and Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. He's like, look, you're not going anywhere. I can't let you go out there. You're going to start a revolution. You're going to go off and build this huge following. Now, David would have had the full right to do that because like, he's the anointed king. Saul doesn't really know that at this point. But he, he could have full well... Uh, done that. But David sits quietly for about 20 years after his anointing. He doesn't do anything. 
Because it's the Lord who promotes. It's the Lord who exalts when it's time. And the Lord is going to be faithful to his promise to David. And David's waiting for the Lord to deliver on that promise. You see, this is one of the great things about David, that he trusts the Lord. He wants to obey the Lord. He's operating from faith, and if the Lord said he would do something, he's going to do it. He doesn't have to convince the Lord to do it. He doesn't have to say, how come you're not doing it? He can simply come and say, I'm going to do what you've put in front of me. I'm going to be faithful with what you've given me. Both he and Jonathan are alike. They pursue the Lord together. Verse 3, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Now we find the establishing of this covenant here between Jonathan and David, and this really demonstrates this commitment, this depth of friendship. Covenants were something that would be practiced commonly in that time, not just for, not frequently for uh, friendship necessarily, but, uh, you know, in terms of being a legally binding contract, if you will. This would be brought about by, you find this described um, in Genesis chapter 15. Um, you, you see an example of a covenant there, and this is a covenant that the Lord makes with Abraham. But here we find that, that they make a covenant. And this covenant is uh, something that's brought about of two parties who are coming together wanting to make a commitment over something. And what happens here is that they take some sort of uh, animal that they're going to sacrifice, and they cut the pieces of the animal uh, in half, and they put one on one side and one on the other side, and that these parties make this kind of confession about what they're going to do on their behalf, hold up their end of the bargain, and then they both walk between these uh, animals that have been torn in two. And, and this is to say uh, to the other party, if I am unfaithful to this covenant, then uh, may I be torn apart just as this animal has been torn apart. It's a very serious thing to uh, come into this covenant, to make this level of promise. There's, there's, what it says here is that there is a complete and total commitment to the other party, that you are 100% committed, you are 100% liable for the other person. That there's, no, there's no back doors, there's no clauses that let you out of this. This is it. And so as they make this covenant, something interesting happens here. They go through, they make this covenant of friendship, this covenant of loyalty. And in the midst of this covenant, we read in verse 4, And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. What's happening here? Why is like Jonathan all of a sudden just like, yo, like I don't need this stuff. Like here's some cool things. Because <laughs> otherwise it's just a little bit strange. What happens here is that Jonathan recognizes wholeheartedly that David is the man who God is working in. And Jonathan recognizes wholeheartedly 
that David will do all that God calls him to do and that David has been prepared for this role, to be obedient. And what Jonathan also recognizes here is that David is a greater man than he is. And that David will ultimately be the one to lead Israel in the future. And so although Jonathan is the legitimate successor to the throne to take Saul's place in giving his robe and giving his armor and giving his sword, his belt to David, he's indicating to David that he is willing to forego that right that would have been given to him. He's saying, I know that there's no way that I'm going to hold this rule. That this is an identity that I cannot possibly fill. I cannot have this. Even though, it, even though I've been told that this is who I am, I know that that's not actually true. And so in order for him to rightly recognize what God is doing, he takes his robe and his armor, which would have been the physical indication that he is the next heir. Like, it would have been like a, a, a royal robe, not just like, hey, here's like a cool jacket that you could wear. This would have been with the marks of royalty on it. The armor would have been marked as uh, indicating his, his status. And he takes this, and he sheds this, and he gives it to David. He takes these things off and says, I'm transferring the kingdom to you. He says, I know that I will never rule and reign. I'm renouncing my position as the prince. And I'm giving all my rights of succession to you. See, what happens here is that Jonathan is acting in tremendous humility. He's acting in faith. He's not acting from fear, like Saul often is. This faith allows him to act in humility because he doesn't have to protect his identity. He knows that the person who he's giving this to is knit together with him. And that he has his best interest in mind. You see, when we have an understanding of who God is and what he has done for us at the cross, when we see the record of his faithfulness, that faithfulness should allow us to operate in humility. It should allow us to move forward Instead of pretending like we have rights, we should be able to see what Jesus has done, how he has lived, that he's the only true king, and that we can then transfer all that we have to him. We can lay down all of our weapons, we can lay down all of our armor, and we can say, you're the king. You fight. You go to battle.
You see, this is exactly what happened 100% when Jesus did go to the cross. He was making a declaration that your identity is never going to hold up. You can convince yourself as much as you want that you're going to be good enough, that you're going to be smart enough, that you're going to be accepted through your own works, through your own merit, through your own skills, abilities, that you're going to climb the corporate ladder quick enough, that you're going to get the right you know, uh, awards and, and recognition that will lead to your flourishing. But history tells us that that's not the case. You can look back at generations and generations of men and women throughout history who have prospered financially, who have prospered in emotionally, that they seem like they are all together on the outside. But it's those who have reached the heights, the pinnacle of just the aspirations of society that get to the top and they find that there's nothing there. They get to the top and they find that it's empty. Is this all there is? But what Jesus has said again and again is that if you want to have success, if you want to flourish, that's simply found by obeying him. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. If you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. But if you seek to save your life, you'll, you'll lose your life. It's precisely in that letting go and that taking off of your armor and taking off of that thing which protects you or that you think that you are defined by. When you come to find your full identity in Christ, it's the only time that you can truly rest. And you can rest because his work is perfect. He's not going to fail. He's going to be successful 100% of the time. And he has proven it through his work at the cross. You see, if he wasn't successful, then we'd have reason to be, to be worried. If, if he was not faithful, then we might be concerned. But what happened at that covenant in Genesis chapter 15? You see, Abraham entered into that covenant... And if you go back and you look at that covenant, we find that the animals were torn in two and a promise was made that there would be this flourishing of life and that God would keep his word. It's the Lord and Abraham making this covenant. But yet, when it comes time, when it comes time to walk between the animals, it's not Abraham who goes through, it's the Lord who goes through which would never happen because it's the lesser who's the one who would make that who would make that walk the lesser party would make the walk between the animals and is the lord less than abraham no but what the lord is saying there to abraham is i know you can't keep this covenant i know you can't do it and so i will go through so that when you fail, I will be torn for you. 
I will be the one who is torn apart. It's the Lord's faithfulness demonstrated there that we trace all the way from Abraham, all the way through Jesse, the Bethlehemite, through David, to Jesus. So that he might ultimately be torn for us. He might die in our place. Bearing the punishment that we should have received. So that we might have new life. And his only only invitation that comes as a result of his death at the cross and his resurrection from the grave is that we would find our identities in him. That we would take off that armor and we would say, here you go. You can be the king. It's what he's called us all into. You see... Jonathan knew what he was doing. Because the result of this, of Jonathan laying his rights down, the result is that David goes out and he's continuing to be successful as Jonathan knew he would be. We read in verse 5, And David went out, and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So the result of David's great victory, the result of this covenant, is that David keeps getting promoted. He keeps getting put in charge of more things. He wins against Goliath. He gets a place at the court. He gets this huge rank in the army. Now he's in charge of all the men of war. He's visible to all the people, all the servants, and yet the Lord is prospering him. He's not prospering him just because David's very, you know, this clever strategic general. The Lord's prospering him because he, he wants to know, like David and, and the Lord are in a relationship. They're covenanted together. It's the Lord working to demonstrate his own character, his own faithfulness, so that that assembly there, Israel might know that the Lord fights for them and that he does not save by the sword or the spear and so that the other nations might know that there is a God in Israel. You see, similarly, the result of the cross, the result of the resurrection is that we now have this mission as a part of God's family, to go out and tell people to make disciples of all nations. That's what Jesus said. To let the nations know that there is a God who is faithful, that there is a better way. This is our job as God's people, to declare his name, to declare his faithfulness. 
This only comes about, this is only possible if we are a people who are rightly responding to that question that Saul asked in the beginning. Whose son is this? Do you say that Jesus is the son of God? Do you make that declaration with your lips and with your heart and then with your lives and the way that you act and live? Or are you simply saying, well, he's like a pretty cool guy. He's a good leader, perhaps a great prophet, but that's it. The testimony of the scriptures doesn't really leave that open. Doesn't really leave that open as a a response. The testimony of the scriptures does not uh, allow us to come to that conclusion. And so if you're arriving at that conclusion, I would suggest that it's not because of faith, but because of fear. Fear of what it means to give your entire identity over to the king. But fear not. The king is good and faithful. And it's already demonstrated that at the cross. So I urge you, trust him and recognize him as the true and living son of God. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful. We're so thankful for your kindness, for your work. We're so thankful for your goodness to us and that you've given us your son. We're so thankful that you have allowed us to draw near to you by your work at the cross and that you've invited us in. And so, Lord, we want to say thank you this morning. We want to recognize you as our King, our Lord, our Savior. We ask that you would be glorified in your church this morning. You would help us to respond to you now in worship. And Lord, we want to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we want to we want to see you lifted up. We want to recognize you as the true king. And so, Lord, take those those little strongholds of fear that we have in our lives. Break them down. We want to submit them to you. And let your love cast out that fear. 
And so, Lord, accomplish this work among your people. We love you. Amen.